1: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, the second of our shows with shortlisted writers for the 2017 Welcome Book Prize. Here's Ed Yong on his book, I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and The Grander View of Life. Before we start the show, a quick thanks to Hannah McMillan at Midas PR and to everyone at the Wellcome Trust for setting up these interviews. Ed Yong is an award-winning science writer who reports for The Atlantic. His work has appeared in Wired, The New York Times, Nature on the BBC, The New Scientist, Scientific American, The Guardian, The Times and more. And Ed's first book is I Contain Multitudes, which has been shortlisted for the 2017 Welcome Book Prize. Ed, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, thanks for having me tell me what the idea is behind i contain multitudes then
3: okay so every human contains about 39 trillion microbes in our bodies Um, so that's bacteria and other microscopic organisms and that's roughly one of them for each of our own human cells so we're all home to this vast ecosystem of life even though i'm sitting here by myself talking to you i really am an entire world in my own right and the same is true across the entire animal kingdom every individual is really a zoo in itself. And that is an astonishing and much grander view of nature, I think, than what we're presented with. When we go to a zoo, when we watch David Attenborough documentaries, we really need to be aware that every one of the creatures we see is a world unto itself. And all of these microbes play really vital roles in our lives. You know, We've long viewed them as sources of disease and dirt, as things that we needed to eradicate before they killed us. But actually, all of these microbes, like most of them are benign, and some of them are beneficial to us. They play really important roles in our lives. So those in our bodies, for example, help us to digest our food and to train our immune systems uh, and to build our organs and protect us from disease. Those in other animals give them even greater superpowers like regeneration, producing light, uh, being able to kill their enemies or defend themselves from diseases. So the book is really about this wider view of nature which comes from understanding that all of us are entire ecosystems in our own right. And of course the
2: book is about you know, the idea of the microbiome. But winding that out for a second, let's talk about microbes more generally, because, you know, they're everywhere. They're at the bottom of the deepest
3: oceans, they've been to space. How long have they been around? So um, if you condense the history of life into a single calendar year, then life originated probably sometime in late February, maybe early March, and for the vast majority of its history, it consisted entirely of microbes. And microbes were the only thing on the planet until roughly about October in this in this imaginary calendar, when um, multicellular lives, uh, things like fungi and eventually animals and plants, first uh, came on the scene. And then things like humans. You know, we've only been around for the last like half hour or so. So you know, we are just this footnote on life's history. And for most of life's history. was entirely dominated by microbes.
2: And so all of that time, the microbes were around, there were presumably lots of different types, filling every niche that was available. What did that mean for more complex life forms when they started to evolve?
3: So it means that um, we all emerged into this world that was already full of microbes and dominated by microbes. And so we kind of inevitably came to um, live with them, to exploit them and to depend upon them.
2: How do we depend on them? Let's talk about some ways in which ourselves, first of all, we'll look at some good animal examples. But you mentioned at the start of the book that actually human beings probably could live some sort of a life without microbes
3: yeah that's right. I mean we probably wouldn 't die instantly, but i don 't think we'd be very well off either. You know we need our microbes to help regenerate our organs and to um, train our immune system to digest our food to act as barriers against disease um, so we 're not going to be very healthy without them and um, If you look at other animal groups, uh, they would fare even worse, so things like um cows and sheep and other grazing mammals they need microbes to digest the tough carbohydrates in the plants that they eat. And if all of their microbes were to disappear, they wouldn't be able to survive. And the same is true for a lot of the um, sap-sucking bugs that are such problems for farmers and gardeners. So things like aphids rely on microbes to provide them with nutrients that are missing from their diet of plant sap. Again, if you got rid of their microbes, uh, they would all disappear as well. And, you know, to an extent, all of us depend on the descendants of microbes that live within our bodies. So every one of our cells has little structures called mitochondria in them, which provide us with energy and power. And these little batteries are the um, descendants of once free-living bacteria that made their homes inside ancestral cells and then became forever more a part of them. All of us, day in, day out, depend on upon either bacteria and microbes or the remnants of bacteria and microbes
2: so in terms of our of human beings people will obviously be familiar with bad microbes things that make us ill and might want to kill us good microbes something you might find in a yogurt at the supermarket but in this book you you sort of want to get rid of the idea of good and bad microbes
3: yeah that's right. I think that these are very simplistic categories that don't really reflect the very dynamic and contextual nature of the natural world so in in nature, um, you know the the microbes in our gut might be able to help to build uh, our immune systems and to um, digest our food. But if they cross the lining of the gut, they could easily cause inflammation or blood poisoning and sepsis, so the very same organisms you know, just in a slightly different place, a millimeter across can turn from allies into enemies. And there are many other examples where you know, exactly the same microbes in a slightly different circumstance can be either heroic or villainous to us. And it makes little sense to think of them as either inherently good or bad. Um, their nature depends very much on our ability to control them and to um, keep our relationships with them harmonious.
2: Let's look at a couple of examples of um, symbiotic relationships with animals and and microbes. So you talk about how squids or a certain type of squid gets its luminescence.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, there is a squid called the Hawaiian bobtail squid, and it's got these two light organs on its undersides. And those organs are full of glowing bacteria, and the light that they produce um, shines down below the squid and matches the moonlight that shines down on top of it. Um, So any predator looking from below can't make out the difference between these two light sources and it can't tell where the squid stops and the rest of the ocean begins. It basically, the bacteria basically cancel out the squid's silhouette and render it invisible. And the really astonishing thing about this is that It's only one particular bacterium called Vibrio fisheri that does this for the squid. And out of the millions of species that live in the ocean, the squid only allows this one partner to live inside its body. And when the bacterium enters the squid, it kind of transforms it. It it terraforms it like the um, colonists of sci-fi novels terraform other planets, turning it into a more hospitable environment in which to live.
2: You mentioned, um, aphids and bugs. I wanted to talk about the citrus mealy bug, which has a, a particularly complicated relationship with microbes.
3: Yeah, the citrus mealybug is like uh, one of those Russian dolls where you you open one doll and inside there's a smaller one and you open that and there's a smaller one inside. So the mealybug has bacteria living inside its cells, like the ones I mentioned that provide nutrients to their hosts. But those bacteria have even more bacteria living inside them. So it's bacteria inside bacteria inside an insect. And the astonishing thing about the setup is that all three of the partners cooperate and all three of them depend on each other. So they're all needed to make the nutrients that all three of them depend upon. And that's just an astonishing example of how deeply intertwined and how intimate these relationships can be. You have this nested set of three organisms that are all utterly dependent on one another for their survival.
2: You mentioned earlier the our immune system, and you know people think that the immune system is there to protect us from in, invading microorganisms, so how does it coexist with our
3: microbiome? Okay, so we think of the immune system as like this weaponized uh, militarized defense force that protects us from anything that's other or alien or foreign, but actually the immune system tolerates most of the microbes that live within us, and it is shaped by those microbes so some of the microbes living inside our body um, promote the development of some types of immune cells. And the immune system also selects for microbes. So it allows certain species and strains to uh, take up shop within our bodies um, while excluding others. So, you know, I think of the immune system as, as like a set of uh, park rangers that care for the residents of the park. That's the microbes that keep their populations in check and that stop invasive species from entering entering the fray. But it's a very, very it's a tightly knit and symbiotic relationship. It's not the case that the immune system is just destroying every microbe that it comes across.
2: And if I have some sort of illness and I need to take antibiotics, what's happening to our microbiome then?
3: So antibiotics kill the microbes that we depend upon as well as those that might cause us harm. They aren't subtle weapons and they have done us a huge amount of good. And I want to make it clear that we shouldn't fear or demonize antibiotics. And indeed, you know, after we take them, the microbiome takes a hit. But in most cases, it bounces back to something very much like its original setting. So it has has resilience. It can absorb knocks from things like antibiotics. But I think the critical thing to do is... to use these drugs judiciously, using them carefully to treat infections that they can actually treat rather than things like, say, colds and flu, uh, which antibiotics have no hope of treating, or to reduce or stop using them in agriculture. Um, They're given in huge quantities to livestock to make them grow bigger, and that is a use that we can't afford to keep up anymore given the rise of things like drug resistance infections.
2: And so how do the drug resistant infections come about? I wanted to talk about how microbes evolve, I guess. How do they become resistant to antibiotics?
3: So in in several ways, Uh, we know that um, as long as antibiotics have existed, so antibiotics are bacterial weapons that we've just sort of exploited and repurposed. They've been around for billions of years. And as long as they've been around, bacteria have evolved resistance to them. Now, the human use of antibiotics has led to widespread resistance because bacteria evolve very quickly. If you chuck a drug at them, they will very rapidly become resistant to it because some will die off, some will have the right mutations to uh, shrug off the drugs or diffuse them or pump them out. And those mutations will then spread in the population.
2: I wanted to talk about how we how we get our microbiomes in the first place so first of all how does it pass from a mother to an infant
3: we get our first microbes from our mothers uh, at the moment of birth so the uterus uh, the womb is a sterile environment and when babies pass out uh, the vaginal tract they pick up mum's vaginal microbes and then microbes from other parts of a body like skin gut and so on so we get most of our first microbes from our mothers and they set up further waves of pioneers to come and also you
2: talk about how microbes are passed from the mother's milk as well
3: Yeah, so um, some microbes exist in breast milk, and breast milk also is a way of selecting for certain types of microbes. So, milk contains, so about 10% of milk consists of these very complicated sugars that babies can't digest. And those sugars are there to nourish certain microbes inside the baby's gut, and particularly some strains that have evolved to digest those sugars with incredible efficiency. And and so, they are good for the baby's health, and by nourishing them, uh, breast milk, by feeding those microbes uh, which then feed the baby breast milk acts as a way for mums to set up that first uh, world inside their children to engineer those initial ecosystems
2: on a lighter note perhaps another way in which if our microbiome has been depleted another way that we can restock it is literally by a transplant of faecal matter
3: that's right. Uh, fecal transplants are exactly what they sound like. You take stool from a healthy person and put them in someone who's sick in a hope of uh, resetting their gut microbiome of of doing a kind of ecosystem transplant. Now This uh, has been done for a condition called Clostridium difficile, an infection by a very nasty, invasive bacterium that is very difficult to treat. People who have C. diff infections often get uh, recurrent, perhaps even fatal cases of diarrhoea. Now, faecal transplants have proven to be one of the best, if not the best way of treating C. diff infections. They are way better than most antibiotics. But faecal transplants have been less successful in treating a lot of other conditions that have been linked to the microbiome things like inflammatory bowel disorder or irritable bowel syndrome or all sorts of other conditions even in this case it's very difficult to reset these ecosystems even when you're giving someone an entire community of someone's gut bacteria
2: for how long has the medical world been studying the microbiome as something that can be used to improve our health
3: It's been studied for actually a very long time, like several decades, but it's only come to the forefront of medicine and biology probably in the last decade or so. That's because of several reasons, of technological advances, of uh, our ability to really look at which bacteria are present and what they're doing, of a kind of cultural change where people who were studying these things used to be confined to the sidelines of biology and have now moved to more central roles. And also, I think, just because... um, important discoveries were made linking the microbiome to all sorts of different illnesses like obesity, diabetes, colorectal cancer, irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disorder. I mean, you name it, it has been linked to the microbiome. A lot of these links are still pretty preliminary. They're based on uh, correlative studies and they can't tell whether the microbes are actually causing the conditions or just a consequence of them. But it does point to these many links between the microbiome and our health. And unlike say our genes which are very difficult to change the microbiome is theoretically a little bit more uh, flexible a little bit more easy to manipulate so the hope is that by changing it we'll be able to uh, improve our health in lots of different ways but i think we're still a long way from realizing that potential because it just seems to be much more complicated than anyone had really thought over the last several years
2: As you've already mentioned, part of the subtitle of this book suggests a grander view of life that we can take by considering the microbiome. So, since writing it, do you look upon yourself as different? And do you think we should be considering ourselves as, you know,
3: as little worlds? Yeah, very much so. And I think it's it's kind of a glorious way of looking at the world. I, I grew up, um, as I'm sure many of the listeners here will have done, watching David Attenborough documentaries. You know, I still love them. I still love things like Planet Earth and The Hunt and whatnot. And when I look at those documentaries, I understand that all of these living things that we can see are deeply influenced by things we can't see. And if we don't understand our relationships with them, we don't really understand ourselves. We're sort of looking at biology through a keyhole. And I think it's a much more expansive view of the world to understand that all of us depend on these things that we aren't really aware of, that we can't see, and yet we know are there. And you know, I, I'm a science writer. I really love stories. Um, the book that I've written, well, I contain tell is full of those stories. And I think that microbes provide some of the best stories because in many ways, they're just underdogs. You know, we've, we've sort of ignored and feared them for so long. And yet they turn out to be hugely important and really interesting. And And I think that's one of the things that really draws me towards this topic.
2: Just one more question then. So what does it mean for you that the book been shortlisted for the welcome prize
3: this year? It's really gratifying. Um, you know, I, I worked really hard in the book and it's really, um, it's just really wonderful to hear that so many people enjoy it, that it has uh, been opening people's eyes to this area of biology that they didn't really understand before. And, you know, I, I love the fact that it has been recognised in both the uh, mainstream and the scientific press as something that's totally accessible to people who just about knew what a bacterium was, but also, kind of rigorous and and sensible to people who are actually in the field and studying this stuff and you know i i just hope that people enjoy the book i hope that it makes them see themselves in a new light and i hope that it makes them want to find out more about the things that they share their lives with
2: So I've been talking to Ed Young and we've been talking about his book I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and A Grander View of Life which is published by The Bodley Head and is shortlisted for the 2017 Welcome Book Prize Ed, thanks so much for sharing it with us
3: Thanks Neil
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to
4: provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
3: I'm Emily Mayhew. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Dr
2: Susanne O'Sullivan has been a consultant in neurology since 2004, first working at the Royal London Hospital and now as a consultant in clinical neurophysiology and neurology at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery and for a specialist unit based at the Epilepsy Society. In that role she has developed an expertise in working with patients with psychogenic disorders alongside her work with those suffering with physical diseases such as epilepsy. Suzanne's first book is It's All in Your Head, True Stories of Imaginary Illness, which has recently been shortlisted for the Welcome Book Prize. Suzanne, thanks for speaking to Little Atoms today.
4: Thank you very much.
2: Give me a brief overview of what It's All in Your Head is about.
4: Yeah, it's really about my experience of working with people who have medically inexplicable disability. So essentially I started work as a neurologist in 2004 having done many years of training obviously and what I really expected to do in my work was to spend most of my time looking after people with brain diseases and epilepsy in particular. What actually transpired was that in the first year of practice 70% of people that I admitted to hospital with severe uncontrollable seizures didn't have a brain disease. They actually had a condition that we now call dissociative seizures, so seizures that have a psychological or behavioral origin rather than being anything related to epilepsy at all. And just to put that in context, 100 years ago, if I had seen these people, I would have been telling them that they had hysteria or hysterical seizures. So essentially, in 2004, I found myself plunged into this situation where I was trained to look after people with neurological diseases, but a huge number of the people I was seeing with seizures actually had a psychological or behavioral problem rather than a, a neurological problem. And what resulted really was a very major learning curve for me. You know, technically, these people were under my care, but they were outside of my field of expertise. And I had to learn very quickly how I was going to manage that situation. And I've spent over 10 years now doing that. And. I started out really having struggling to manage some of these conditions, but over time I just developed a huge respect for the people who suffer in this way and I've really seen at first hand how neglected they are. These are people with paralysis, seizures, blindness, memory disturbance, and all of this is happening for psychological rather than physical reasons. It's a very neglected group of patients and through writing It's All in Your Head, what I've really hoped to do is to really tell their stories so that people can see how much they're suffering, how little respect they're given and how much more we need to direct our resources in their direction.
2: That's a key point you just said that how little respect they're given because it's obviously a very sensitive area. The last thing a patient wants to hear is that their illness that's obviously been troubling them for ages it's all in their mind. Why are we so sensitive to that idea do you think?
4: Well, I think that, you know, it's very obvious. I think if I say to anybody, you know, if you have a work colleague and that work colleague is in a wheelchair and they can't move their legs at all and you believe they're suffering because they have something like multiple sclerosis, for example, you know, I think most people would have sympathy for someone in that situation. If a week later... You were told that their leg paralysis was actually psychological in origin rather than due to a brain disease. I believe that most people have an immediate shift in their sympathy for that. I think people regard these sort of disabilities as less serious. So obviously if you find that you go to a neurologist and you're given this diagnosis, you're aware of this public perception and that you're aware that the, you will face judgment of people who think you're doing it on purpose or you could stop it if you wanted to. So I think that patients rail against the diagnosis very reasonably. I think there's a great stigma attached to this sort of disability because people don't believe it's real. My experience is that it's not only real, but it's actually even more disabling than many brain diseases. Well, if, I mean, obviously,
2: uh, a lot of mental illnesses have a stigma attached to them. But if I was having hallucinations or hearing voices and went to the doctor and, and said this and was diagnosed with schizophrenia or something, I would have no problem with understanding that that was something that was going on in my mind.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's the very nature of this condition is that it's something that's happening in the mind, which is psychological or behavioral, but it doesn't feel that way. So you don't experience anxiety or stress or you don't experience psychological symptoms. Instead, you experience physical symptoms. So it's the very nature of the fact that something is psychological is presenting as physical and then you go to a neurologist thinking you have a physical disease and the neurologist is then telling you that you don't. So I think it's the very nature of the way these things present. They are presenting as something they're not and then a patient is faced with something very abrupt, which is that, something they're not expecting usually, and that really caused them to rail against it.
2: Now, there are other things that our body does in an involuntary way. So we blush, for instance. We don't have any control over that. When we laugh or we cry, there are physiological effects on our body. And we all accept those things.
4: Yeah, I mean, that's what I try to say to people. I mean, because it's important that I point out that When I'm talking about people who have serious disability for psychological reasons, some people believe that that's quite unusual, rare problem. There's nothing rare about it at all. It's quite common. And in order to try and kind of demystify it for people, I generally try and point out that our bodies are constantly reacting to emotional things. In fact, it's so unbelievably normal that we don't even think about it. You know, so all the common things are obviously blushing. You know, people's hands shake. Most people have had a tremor in their hands in relation to... To anxiety at some point in their lives and um, our voices crack when we're nervous if we have to speak in front of a crowd of people and these reactions are instantaneous also we have no control over them so i do think it's very important that if people can recognize that normal healthy sane intelligent people get these things all the time and that the sort of disorders i'm dealing with are really just an extension of something that happens to everybody
2: you already mentioned the idea that this would once upon a time have been considered like a hysterical illness tell me something about the history of psychosomatic illness when did we first recognize that it was a thing and how was it treated in the past
4: well i mean hippocrates recognized that our bodies responded physically to stress so we've always known this but it has gone it's had an interesting trajectory which is When people believed that it was an entirely emotional problem, then it tends to not be discussed. But when people believe that it's a primarily organic physical problem, then it becomes more popular. So for example, in the late 19th century in France, a very well-known neurologist called Charcot focused a huge amount of attention on hysteria. He was the first person to study it scientifically. He believed absolutely that it was an organic illness. And during that time, there were huge outbreaks of hysteria because for once, people could admit that they had this problem and that actually made it a popular diagnosis but based solely on the fact that it was believed to be an organic illness. After Charcot passed away, it was taken over by doctors who believed it was a psychological illness and then it kind of slunk back into the shadows again, leading people to believe that hysteria had disappeared. So, the original use of the word hysteria was not in any way meant to be a derogatory term as we would use it now. It's also obviously extremely important to point out that hysteria refers to the womb, and. There were long periods of history when people believed that these kind of problems came from the womb and some women actually had hysterectomies to treat convulsions or hysterectomies to treat all sorts of different medical complaints. So the condition has had a very interesting history, usually strongly influenced by whether people thought it was an organic or a psychological problem at that point in time.
2: And nowadays, bringing this up today, is this typically an illness of the comfortable West, of the worried well, or is is it a worldwide thing?
4: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, actually, because you would think that this is an illness. My impulse would have been to think that this is an illness of the West, but actually there have been very well carried out studies that have looked at this condition in lots of different countries. So comparing places like the States, Germany, with places like um, Nigeria, and it really doesn't matter what sort of health service you have or what sort of economy you have. This is a problem in every sort of country.
2: But there are occasions, though, where psychosomatic illnesses are, if it's the right word, transmitted by the media, by stories.
4: Yeah, absolutely, because these illnesses are, I sort of think of them as illnesses of the imagination to a certain degree, which is not to say they're not real, they're absolutely real, but the idea for the symptoms comes from somewhere and that comes from the imagination and what's in the imagination is your life experience, the things you've seen, the things you've read about. So for example, if people read that there's an outbreak of diarrhea and vomiting as a result of tainted water, as I think there was recently in the UK, well, then people may very well begin experiencing symptoms because they're concerned about their own water supply. So it is certainly the case that these things can spread through the concern that is spread by the media. But I don't think that The media is in any way responsible for this. They just have the possibility of shaping it. So we all suffer these kind of psychosomatic symptoms all the time, but they don't usually lead to disability. I don't think the thing the media does is it gives names and through describing the symptoms of other people can influence the pattern. I don't think it influences the volume.
2: I want us to look at some of the case studies. Throughout the book, you use some examples of anonymous examples of people that you've treated in the past or stories that you've come across. And before we do that, just give us a general idea about what your approach is nowadays to treating these illnesses. And first of all, an obvious thing about an illness that is to some degree imaginary would be that everybody would experience those illnesses differently, wouldn't they?
4: Yeah well I think you know that's the nature of disease to be honest rather than just this particular problem. I mean if you talk to two people with asthma they'll give you really different descriptions. So yes everyone's different. I mean I think the first approach, the first important point in the approach is to make sure that diagnosis is sound. Because obviously if you go and see a doctor with a pain in your stomach or paralysis in your legs and the doctor says all the tests are normal and that you potentially have a psychosomatic condition, the first thing you're going to think is have they missed something. So I always, always try to approach patients with an absolutely open mind and make sure that they've been properly listened to, examined and investigated. When those investigations lead to a diagnosis, to my conclusion that they have a psychosomatic disorder, you know, it's really about the way that a diagnosis is delivered is of the most immense importance because a huge number of people have Suffered the experience where they have either been told or they feel like they've been told that there's nothing wrong with them or that they're imagining the symptoms or that their symptoms are under their control. So, really, that's the first thing I really try to emphasize with patients is this is a real condition. So, it's no point in telling someone with seizures that their tests are normal and therefore there's nothing wrong with them. Someone with seizures always has something wrong with them. So, it's really about dispelling the common fears in the first instance and just also trying to make people realize that although their illness is absolutely real, very life-destroying at that point, it has the potential to get better, and that's the positive side of this. So once a diagnosis has been made, although it can be incredibly hard work, these people can get better if we can get them the appropriate help.
2: We haven't really talked yet about in general terms about what causes psychosomatic illnesses and in the examples we're going to look at there's often examples of emotional distress or trauma what do we know if anything about the link between emotional distress and physical symptoms?
4: Yeah I mean there's absolutely no doubt that people who've suffered with serious traumas in their life can sometimes express it as a physical symptom so I would deal very often with people with very extreme examples of this problem, and in particular with people with seizures. And about 30% of people who have dissociative seizures, as we call them now, or um, psychosomatic seizures, have suffered very serious abuse in childhood. And also, people who suffer in this way have had losses or suffered an accident. So that sort of psychological stress can certainly lead to these sort of disorders. But the thing is that once upon a time, doctors thought that everybody who had a psychosomatic disorder had suffered that sort of trauma, particularly sexual abuse. And that caused huge problems between doctors and patients because doctors were probing their patients to admit that something awful psychological had happened to them and patients were telling them honestly that nothing had. So really, although I know that emotional trauma is very important, I don't think it's the only mechanism for this condition now. Sometimes the mechanism is more related to how we interpret our body and how we respond to pains. So for example, if you've got an injury and you're not used to being injured and you're afraid to walk because your foot was injured, then that can slowly over time produce a disability. But I think some people have suffered psychological traumas and others have not. I'm Alex Kretowski, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture.
2: Well, let's stick with seizures to begin the examples then. Let's talk about the example of Camilla, who seemingly out of the blue has a series of violent seizures. What was her story?
4: Yeah, I mean, it was a terribly sad story. Camilla just abruptly began having seizures. And at the time when she had the seizures, there really was no obvious trigger. So she was a very successful woman. She seemed to have it all together, really. She had a family and she had a high-powered job. And then she abruptly began having seizures and everything was threatened. And in the first instance, it really wasn't obvious at all what was causing her seizures. They were confirmed as being uh, related to something psychological because she had seizures during tests and those tests were normal. So there's no doubt about the diagnosis, but in the first instance, it wasn't obvious why they had happened. It really only emerged very, very slowly over time that there had been a very serious accident when her own child was under her care, and that child, unfortunately, was hit by a car, and the child died. And that was something that, obviously, Camilla was fully aware of when she came into the hospital. It was not something she'd forgotten or repressed, but rather she couldn't make the emotional connection between the loss that she had and subsequently having the seizures, which was something that happened many years later. And that's really an example of this feeling of dissociation that causes things like seizures. So dissociation is when you get sort of separated from your surroundings. If you, we all dissociate sometimes, for example, if you're watching television or you read a page of a book, you read the whole page, but you don't remember it. That's an example of normal dissociation. But sometimes that can be exaggerated, cause people to really lose touch with the emotions at the heart of their symptoms. And in Camilla's case, result in seizures.
2: Early on in your career, you came across another example, a woman called Yvonne. This is a really fascinating story. Tell us what happened to her.
4: Yeah, Yvonne suffered a fairly minor accident and when she was at work. She got cleaning fluid sprayed in her eyes. And 24 hours or so after that accident occurred, Yvonne went completely blind. She was obviously admitted to hospital and had lots of tests. Neurological examination, neurological tests are really sophisticated now so it was possible to demonstrate that her nerve pathways were completely normal and that her eyes appeared by our test to be functioning normally so her pupillary responses were normal but Yvonne couldn't see. Over time as I got to know her there was a lot of inconsistencies in Yvonne's behavior so when I examined Yvonne formally she couldn't see at all but when I was with her in a more informal way, just chatting with her, she would make eye contact with me in the same way a sighted person would. Uh, If I met her in a car, she would say hello to me by name before I introduced myself. So Yvonne's behavior seemed to be that of a sighted person. She experienced being profoundly blind. You know, that was cases like that were really really informative for me as a doctor because in the first instance when you see that sort of contradictory behavior in a patient you can't help but think you know are they putting it on are they lying is she pretending to be blind was what went through my mind I still had sympathy for her because if someone needs to pretend to be blind to get attention that's still a very serious problem but it was a real struggle for me to understand the contradiction in her behavior but I've realized over time with dealing with patients like Yvonne that actually this kind contradiction behavior if anything is absolutely proof of their innocence and their complete lack of insight into their disorder so I think someone who's trying to fool their doctor someone who's trying to pretend to be blind you know does a, a sort of an exaggerated example of blindness where Yvonne was incredibly sincere and there was inconsistencies in her vision because that's the nature of this disorder it almost needs attention focused on it to be maintained and in distracted moments people are more able to see they're just not aware of it So it's been really instructive for me to meet people like Yvonne because it's allowed me to see that, you know, these people are in a desperate and sincere search for help and we should realise that.
2: And what happened to Yvonne in the end?
4: Well, what happened to Yvonne in the end is that, you know, she ultimately did accept the diagnosis that this visual problem um, was related to something psychological, although she could never... Fully accept exactly what the factors were that had triggered it. I mean, she did have a difficult relationship with her husband. There was conflict within the family, and the blindness did solve some problems within the family. So it's always just speculation. But I would conjecture that that blindness served a certain purpose within the family. It solved problem, it caused one problem, but it solved others. Yvonne, I don't think ever fully accepted that as an explanation. But she certainly accepted that the blindness was not organic, and she ultimately made a full recovery
2: another example a, a young man called Matthew who's convinced he has MS multiple sclerosis he well the time you see him he's in a wheelchair he's housebound tell us about that story yeah
4: again Matthew's problem began with tingling in a foot and he couldn't find an explanation for it with his doctor and he began researching it and he hit upon this possibility that he could have multiple sclerosis by um, researching on the internet and you know his concern that he had multiple sclerosis really added to his symptoms so The more he read about the condition, the more he began searching his body for new symptoms. And the more he searched, the more he found. And that really resulted in a very rapid decline until he was significantly disabled and in a wheelchair and he was really struggling to accept that he didn't have multiple sclerosis because he felt his symptoms fitted perfectly with it and again it's it's another good example of the reality of the disability in these conditions because Matthew presented for test after test when the first scan didn't show evidence of multiple sclerosis you know he was desperate for a second scan that is not the act of someone who's pretending to be disabled in a wheelchair that's an act of someone who has utter disbelief that their scan is normal and utter disbelief that this no organic disease to be found. Ultimately I'm happy to say that Matthew came around to the idea that his problem could actually have a functional or behavioral cause and he actually made great leaps and bounds and improvements with physiotherapy so he did get better with time but it was a struggle for him to accept the diagnosis in the first
2: instance. Now of course inevitably it's not always real. Some people do fake. And you have come across a few over the course of your career. You talk about a patient, particularly called Judith.
4: Yeah, I mean, certainly. I mean, the first thing patients with psychosomatic conditions worry about is that everyone will think they're faking their illness. So. I will always approach every patient with the assumption that that is not the case because if you're disabled and someone accuses you of faking it really is the worst possible kind of insult to their suffering. So I will always approach people with as open-minded as possible, but of course there will be people who do fake illness. In Judith's case, she had what we call a factitious disorder which would have been called Munchausen syndrome in the past. And that's where people deliberately feign illness and lie about being ill for medical attention. So, Judith told me a story which later proved to be completely untrue, that she had suffered a very serious medical condition in the past, that she had leukemia, and that she had had a bone marrow transplant and a variety of other very serious interventions. That, all of that proved to be untrue. After I admitted her to the hospital to begin to investigate her, we saw her on camera deliberately injuring herself and having a seizure that had many features to it that were clearly deliberate. But what I think is really, really important to point out is that Factitious disorders, or Munchausen syndrome, are also very serious disorders. So it would be very easy to look at Judith and consider her to be manipulative. And certainly, she was manipulating me, attempting to get a certain sort of care for me. But anybody who goes to the extremes that Judith went to—to to lie, to present to a hospital, to ask for invasive investigations, to deliberately injure herself just to have someone care for them—is obviously still someone who needs an, a significant amount of help. And it's worth pointing out that people with Munchausen syndrome or factitious disorders usually don't recover so it is an extremely serious illness.
2: Of all the stories in this book I think the example of Rachel is probably the one that's most likely to provoke controversy as it's a story of ME or chronic fatigue syndrome which is something that's for years has been extremely controversial particularly because there are patient groups or the patient advocacy groups. What has your experience been of that?
4: Yeah. I mean what I really am trying to write about in this book what I'm really trying to point out to people is that disability that isn't easily explained on tests and disability that's difficult to understand is a very serious problem it's stigmatized it's not treated fairly and it's not given the same research and resources as other sorts of disability so that really is the point of the book now I found it difficult not to include ME in that because I know that ME is a stigmatized illness that people don't respect. And I think it's a life-destroying illness and it deserves respect. I have had some people very upset because I included ME in a book that um, is about psychosomatic illness. I think that that really is yet another example of how people don't respect people who suffer psychologically. You know, if I saw somebody with motor neurone disease or who thought they had motor neurone disease and I examined them and I discovered they had multiple sclerosis and I changed the diagnosis from one serious disease to another disease, then nobody would get upset and nobody would be outraged at that change of diagnosis. If you change a diagnosis from motor neurone disease into functional weakness or psychosomatic weakness, and people are outraged, then it really shows the attitude that people have to psychosomatic illness. It's just another example of the fact that people don't have any respect for people who suffer psychologically with physical symptoms. And I think very much the opposite of what I'm trying to say in the book. What I'm trying to say is that this sort of disability is very serious. And if we paid it just an ounce more attention than we do, we could actually help a lot of the people because it's curable. And that's what's so sad about it is if we gave it the respect and we paid people who suffer in this way, the same attention as we pay to those who suffer with disease, we could cure them. But by disrespecting them, a lot of them are going untreated.
2: Just one more question then. What does it mean for you that this book has been nominated for the Welcome Book Prize?
4: Yeah, I mean, I'm absolutely, I was absolutely thrilled to be shortlisted. I just over the moon. Personally, I'm very pleased. But I'm also pleased because the subject matter of the book is obviously something which isn't talked about. It is stigmatized. And I think this shortlisting is a real mark of respect for that subject matter. And I'm endlessly appreciative for that.
2: So I've been talking to Suzanne O'Sullivan, and we have been talking about her book, It's All in Your Head, True Stories of Imaginary Illness, uh, which is out now from Chatter and Windus Books. So Suzanne, thank you so much for sharing it with me.
4: Thank you very much. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
3: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM.
1: You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms.
3: If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at
1: littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.